We are in a conversation. We just started a conversation last week uh, about the Psalms. Uh, these uh, music, uh, musical, uh, the Psalms are songs, and they are uh, like other 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 pieces of, of music. They are poems that have been set to music. And and what we saw last week uh, is that is that they are um, they are songs, but the music has been lost to us, and that's probably a good thing because uh, we probably wouldn't care for the music. You know, if you think about the music your grandparents played, you probably didn't care for that. You certainly wouldn't want a great, 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 3,000-year great-grandparents music. So it's probably a good thing that we've lost the music because that gives each generation the opportunity to make new music um, that uh, fits in with their sensibilities. But the words have endured. And what we see when we look at them is they are poems, but they are uh, easy to grasp because they are poems that were designed to be songs. Usually the idea is pretty simple, uh, pretty pretty easy to access, and the, the artistry, the poetry, comes from how you say something that most people can relate to. It's not some deep thought that nobody could ever have. It is something that a lot of people have had, and the artistry comes from your ability to say it in a way that people go, oh, yeah, that's, that's the way I, I see it too, and I'm glad you shared that with me. So that's what we see in the Psalms. And, and because they are songs, uh, they usually can be categorized in a handful of, of categories. Uh, they could be like country songs, or they could be like uh, rock songs, they could be uh, polkas, or, or another way of looking at them is what is the content? Are they, are they songs about love? Are they songs about heartbreak? Are they songs about uh, working on the railroad all the live long day? Whatever, whatever it is, usually it's a pretty straightforward idea. And what we see is the Psalms are the same way. The Psalms can be broken down into a group of categories. We're going to look at one today, which is the Psalms of Praise. Uh, but there's others. There's Psalms of Thanksgiving, Psalms of Lament, and so forth. And we'll see some of those over the next few weeks. But uh, today's is a Psalm of Praise, a Song of Praise, a Psalm of Praise. And um, maybe that's part of the problem for me when I look at this. Um, you know, I know that this will come as a surprise to you, but... Um, I'm not always as bubbly and vivacious as, you know, I, I don't always have the cheerleader personality that you're so used to here. Um, uh, I, I have, I have been accused sometimes of seeing the glass half empty instead of half full. And the way that I, the way that I make an excuse for that is, is I say, well, that's the engineering mindset. Um, you know, I was, I was grown and raised as an engineer and you, the world needs engineers who can look at a problem and break it down and figure, figure how to solve it. And that's the excuse I gave myself. But to be fair, I used to work in a building full of engineers, and I was the one who got the nickname Sunshine. <laughs> and it was ironic. So, um, so maybe that's just an excuse. Um, but, but praise does not come naturally to me. And so maybe I'm not the best person to talk about praise, but, but I know people struggle with this. Um, a couple of years ago, uh, there was a debate held in Grand Rapids, Michigan. It was between Christopher Hitchens, who was a uh, prominent atheist, and his brother Peter, who was uh, at one point an atheist but became a convert to Christianity. And the two of them debated the proposition, Is God Good? That was the, the title of Christopher Hitchens' book. Uh, he said, God is not good, how religion poisons everything. And in that debate, um, uh, uh, Christopher Hitchens, the, the, the pro, 
God is bad person. Um, Christopher Hitchens, he said something that has struck me. Uh, he said that, he said that what religion proposes is a celestial North Korea. He said, I've been to North Korea. It is the most revolting and utter and absolute and heartless tyranny the human species has ever evolved. But at least you can die and leave North Korea. Does the Koran or the Bible offer you that liberty? No, no. The tyranny, the misery, the utter ownership of your personality, the smashing of your individuality only begins at the point of death. So that's uh, Christopher Hitchens. And um, I've linked on the on the website, uh, there's a link you can follow to, to look at the whole debate. It's about an hour long, so be prepared. But that's part of it. Obviously, his brother Peter disagrees, and I disagree. Um, I don't think that he's got the right image of what uh, what heaven is like. He's, I think his image of heaven was much like this picture here. Um, and and that's his notion of what God wants. God wants, you know, ordered masses with flags praising. And I don't think that that's the right image. Um, uh, in 1989, many of you remember when the Iron Curtain fell. Uh, you may remember last last winter we, we celebrated the 25th anniversary of the fall of the Berlin Wall. About a month after the Berlin Wall fell, another communist dictatorship fell. It was in Romania. It probably didn't get as much um, press. But the dictator there was as bad as anyone in the entire um, uh, Eastern Bloc. His name was Nikolai Ceausescu, and he had the whole thing. He had the the cult of personality. He had the repressive security apparatus. He was a nasty piece of work, and he just outlived his era because he, he, would, he ran the country for 25 years. And in December of 1989, uh, as if nothing else was going on in the rest of the, the Eastern Bloc, he uh, found out there was a protest in a town called Timosuara, and he sent the security apparatus to suppress it. And they they did, as they had always done. And uh, three, four days later, on the 21st of December, he went out on the balcony, you know, the gigantic building they used to use, and all the apparatchiks would go out there with him, and they'd stand there, and the, the adoring crowds would be assembled and wave flags and cheer. And he began to give a speech. And he had hardly begun when people began to interrupt him. They began catcalling and screaming from the back of the crowd. And if you watch the video, you can see the shock on his face because nobody has ever interrupted a speech. In 25 years running the country of Romania, nobody has ever let out a peep except applause during his speech. And he is shocked. And you can see the security people running back and forth in the balcony trying to figure what to do. Later that day, he flees the country He's, uh, he comes back to, into the capital. He flees the capital. He is brought back into the capital, and a few days later, he's given a show trial and executed. Show trial and executed. And that's what happens to phony applause. It comes to an end. Ultimately, the conditions change that kept it going, and so it comes to an end. But God is eternal. God has no desire for phony, forced applause. God doesn't want praise that is simply compelled out of people. So the image that Peter Hitchens has created, this image of a, of a tyrant who needs to be propped up by praises of crowds, 
is a wrong image. What the psalmist is saying is he's saying, it's true, the world is filled with petty tyrants and false gods, people who would compel your allegiance, people who want to fool you and tell you they're the real deal. And the psalmist says, they're not, but I have found the real deal. If you're going to praise someone, if you're going to praise anything, he says, praise Yahweh, praise the Lord. If you look at the, the way that this is written in our Bible, it says, it says, praise the Lord. That's an exact translation of the Hebrew, hallelujah. So hallelujah means all y'all people, um, praise ye. It means it is a, it is an invitation to a group of people to praise. And Yah is the, is God's name. He's saying that, uh, it, there's all kinds of things you might want to praise. The one you really should praise, the one that I can testify you should praise is Yahweh. We don't know exactly how that word is pronounced. Sometimes people say Yahweh. The vowels were lost. They were actually never written down. And so what's actually in the Hebrew manuscripts is just the four letters YHWH. And so what they have done is they followed Hebrew tradition and they put this capital letter Lord. But whenever you see that, what they're saying is this is the name of God. This is not just some Lord, you know, my boss. They're saying, they're saying this is the Lord, the Yahweh. So he says, praise the Lord. And then he says, who should praise the Lord? He says, Praise, O servants of the Lord. And, and scholars tell us that maybe that originated as kind of a musical cue uh, within a worship service, that it was like telling the choir, you know, servants of the Lord, do your thing. You know, uh, maybe that's the way it got started. But, but by the time of Christ and even centuries before, the entire community of faith had said, no, that's for us. We all can praise the Lord. So we are all servants of the, servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. He says, Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time on and forevermore. He says the name of the Lord is eternal. This is something you can lean your life against. You can set your compass to this. This is true north, that you can always trust in the name of the Lord. He says from the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. From east to west, north, south, any place the sun falls on is something that God is in charge of, that God rules, that God reigns above He says, the Lord is high above all nations, his glory above the heavens. And we lose this because because we've been convinced. I mean, our culture has been convinced that if you've got a God, what good is a God who's only in charge of a small area? But in that culture, the way that they saw God was you had a you had a hill or you had a mountain, you had a volcano. And there were some gods up there that did their thing. And periodically you'd give them some sacrifices and maybe you could stay off their radar. But. The Hebrew mindset, the Judeo-Christian view of God completely changed that. Nowadays, uh, there are vanishingly few new pagan gods being invented. But in the, in the old days, every time you moved to a new town, you'd say, who are the gods here? Who should I worship? And that was the way that people viewed things. So this God is different. He is high above all nations and his glory above the heavens. So is, is the reason we should praise God because he's so big? Well, yes, but the psalmist goes on. It's not just God's bigness. He says, who is like the Lord our God? He is seated on high, like those myths we hear about up on Olympus. He's seated a lot higher. And he looks far down on the heavens and the earth. 
he raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. How needy? They slept outdoors in the heap of ashes at night because they were hoping there'd be some residual heat from the fires that had been burning during the day. That's how needy they are. And he takes these people, the bottom rung of society. God doesn't simply dabble up there at the very top. God doesn't hobnob with with the fat cats. God comes all the way down to the bottom of society. God comes to the poorest of the poor. God comes to the barren woman. And in that society, uh, there was no one who had more scorn heaped on them than a barren woman. She couldn't do what women were expected to do. That made her vulnerable. Who was going to take care of her when, when she got old? Nobody. But God will. God cares about even barren women, making her the joyous mother of children. So the psalmist says, praise the Lord. He's not making a promise here. This is a song. He's not saying, this is not theology about who God blesses and why. He's saying, look, this has been my experience. This is the people that I know tell these stories about this kind of God, a God who lifts up people who are low. So praise the Lord. But will we? You know, some of us are just uh, kind of sour people. You know, I, I've got a picture um, of me when I was young to kind of explain the kind of person I am. Um, maybe Edmund can show it to us. So, oh wait, that's the wrong one. Um, sorry, uh, there, that's me. Um, so, you know, I'm just not a praising kind of person. So, um, so... Do we praise? Do we praise the way we should? I can. You know, in 1988, about a year before Nikolai Ceausescu fell, I went to a concert. I went to Carnegie Hall. You know how you get to Carnegie Hall? Practice, practice. Thank you. All right. Okay. So uh, we took we took the subway in, but um, uh, uh, the path train. And uh, me and some friends from work, we went to Carnegie Hall and we saw the band Los Lobos. Um, and they were doing this, Los Lobos, the Wolves of East L.A., and they were singing uh, rock Latina, which is their specialty, um, uh, Hispanic rock uh, or Latin rock. They sang a, a whole set, uh, the, the entire concert was traditional Mexican and Central American music on acoustic instruments, and it was the most amazing thing I've ever heard. I've never been to any musical uh, experience of any kind that moved me the way that concert did. It was, I, it was ecstasy. I, I was literally beside myself. I was transported. And maybe, maybe, uh, Los Lobos isn't your thing, I don't know. Um, it should be. Uh, but, um, but you can probably think of something like that. You can probably think of something that lifted you, that transported you. Something that the people around you are enjoying the concert, but you, are transported. This is this is joy. The 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 writer C.S. Lewis, like the Hitchens brothers, he was once an atheist too. But in the 1920s, he was having a conversation one night with his friend J.R.R. Tolkien, and Tolkien got him wondering about joy. And the question he began to ask, he, he began to realize really, was not why are there sour pusses, why are there uh, people like me much of the time who 
see the glass half empty. The truth is, the world is full of half empty glasses. There's lots of half empty glasses. There's lots of reasons to look at the world and see what's right and see what's wrong. But why is there transport? Why is there ecstasy? Why is there joy? And what Lewis came to be convinced of is that it is a foretaste of heaven. So he said that maybe there's something to this religion stuff after all. And eventually he became a Christian and one of the most prominent writers on uh, Christianity of the last century. But I think for a lot of us, even if we say there's joy, we say, well, okay, so you liked a concert, but that was because it was 80 minutes long. Suppose it had gone on for 80 days. Would you have liked it then? Well, honestly, maybe that concert, that group, maybe not. But envision heaven as a place where it's like that concert. Each song better than the one before. Each sight, each experience is greater than the one before. C.S. Lewis uh, went on to write a number of children's books, um, among many other books. And in one of them, the, the Narnia books, uh, he, wrote, he wrote a book called the, um, the Last Battle. And in it, he wrote this. About half an hour later, or it might have been a half a hundred years later, for time there is not like time here, Lucy stood with her dear friend, her oldest Narnian friend, the Fawn Tumnus, looking down over the wall of that garden and seeing all of Narnia spread out below. But when you looked down, you found that this hill was much higher than you had thought. It sank down with shining cliffs thousands of feet below them, and trees in that lower world looked no bigger than grains of green salt. Then she turned inward again and stood with her back to the wall and looked at the garden. I see, she said at last, thoughtfully. I see now. This garden is like the stable. It is far bigger inside than it was outside. Of course, daughter of Eve, said the fawn. The further up and the further in you go, the bigger everything gets. The inside is larger than the outside. See, we judge heaven by the standards of a world where the inside is always smaller than the outside. But Lewis invites us to envision something where the inside is bigger than the outside, where each experience is greater than the one before, where we don't grow tired of something, but we become more and more rapturous, not just for 80 minutes or 80 days, but for eternity. That's the picture that Lewis paints of heaven. And what I wonder when I read this psalm is if maybe it's not just for heaven. Maybe what the writer is inviting us to do is to stretch our hearts, to stretch our capacity for joy by praising God, by seeing those half-full glasses and saying, praise the Lord, magnifying our ability to understand and be moved by God. So praise the Lord. Amen.